0: Innovation doesn't require physical presence. If you look at some of the most innovative teams that are out here in the world, they don't all report to the same offices. Right? That's the beauty of the human state and the human existence. I think that it's a very um, easy way of bringing people to the office and saying, hey, we need to innovate. We need our teams here. It's certainly not a prerequisite. It never has been. And I, I go back to, like, Folks, we've been remote, like we were remote for years. Did that stop your innovation? Did that stop your operations at all? What has changed? Nothing. I think that it's a convenient way of bringing people back to the office.
1: My guest today on Mission Impact is June Jimenez. June and I talk about how to make remote work work for your organization. We explore the issues that nonprofit leaders are juggling regarding the potential and continued return to physical offices and co-located on hybrid work. We also explore how these issues are intersecting with changing employee expectations. Our conversation gave me a chance to get on my soapbox about the myth of organizational culture and innovation only existing and being possible when people are in person. Certainly, there are lots of reasons to bring your team together and work intentionally in person, but the blanket assertion that we will have a stronger organizational culture if we are in person and in the office is just false. Let's be clear. When you have a group of people working together, you have an organizational culture. That is just the essence of humans being in groups. There will be a set of unstated norms. This is true whether your organization is remote first or fully in person. What is probably more true, leaders who want everyone back in person have a number of things going on. Perhaps it's a board who's saying... Why are we paying rent for a space that no one's using? Maybe the leader is more comfortable working in person and struggles with the technology that supports remote work. And there have been much touted about the serendipitous, quote, water cooler moments that in-person work make possible. But research has actually found that there isn't much to that. And other research has found that for many people of color, they report that working remotely increases their engagement because they are shielded somewhat from the microaggressions that they had to experience daily when they were in the office. So in the office is not the magic solution for healthy culture or or innovation. And remote first, of course, doesn't mean that you never get together in person. And for any of these arrangements to work well, whether it's remote first, hybrid, or in-person, leaders and managers need training for how to adjust their leadership to the reconfigured workplace. And just like back when the default was that we were in the office Monday through Friday together, regularly checking in with your staff to get feedback on what is working, what isn't, gauging your organizational cultural strengths and roadblocks, as well as assessing employees' engagement. All of these are even more important as we all attempt to figure out this new normal of work that we're in. Mission Impact is the podcast for nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategy consultant. Mission Impact is brought to you by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting brings you whole brain strategy consulting for nonprofits and associations. We help you move your mission forward, engage all voices, and have fun while doing it. We combine left brain strategy and analysis with right brain wisdom about human complexities for a proven whole brain, whole organization process through which every stakeholder thrives. Reach out to us for support and facilitation of strategic planning, mapping your social impact, as well as auditing your services for mission alignment. We especially love working with staffed, nonprofits, and associations with human-centered missions. If you are listening to this episode close to the time that the episode releases, I want to invite you to a special year-end Nonprofit Leadership Roundtable on Thursday, December 14th from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time. This virtual event is an opportunity for you to reflect and plan. We will be taking a pause, evaluating our 2023, and envisioning our ideal 2024. I know this time of year can mean loads of stress and demands as you're wrapping up this final quarter. So give yourself the gift of time for contemplation of your values, priorities, and goals for your organization and yourself this holiday season. We have a limited number of spots still available, so check out the show notes for a link to reserve your spot now. I hope to see you there. Welcome, June. Welcome to Mission Impact. Thanks for having me. I'm
0: very excited to be here.
1: So I'd like to start each conversation with what drew you to the work that you do? What would you say motivates you and what would you describe as your why?
0: When I first came to the work, I was very aware of the privilege that I had being the daughter of an immigrant, being the daughter of a single parent, and actually making my way through the world and knowing that not everyone who looked like me and and had my experience had the same opportunities. And I wanted to use everything that I was given to be able to make it a little easier for those who came after me, frankly. But then I had a seminal experience. I had a seminal experience and that happened about 10 years ago at this point. I became pregnant with my daughter um, and it was before the Affordable Care Act happened. And um, I off from my job at that point and I couldn't get health insurance. And that was when Health insurance was considered a pre existing condition. So I needed to have paid in for 10 months before they would even give me prenatal care. Mm. And I couldn't qualify for Medicaid because I had a severance. So the way that the systems and the structures in our society were set up were such that I literally had to become bankrupt in order to give birth. And I knew what it was like for someone like me and all the opportunities that I had to very quickly see what it was like to have to go to a grocery store and pay for milk and groceries off of a WIC check and only know what that means and what that looks like. To have to make the choice between rent, utilities, and food because unemployment only gave me $1,200 a month and my mortgage was $1,600 a month. So I was all of a sudden housing insecure for me to have to navigate what prenatal care looked like in a system where frankly, doctors are overworked and they didn't have any time to look at someone like me when they had 20 other patients with much more acute problems than me walking through the door. And when I looked at that and I looked at what we did to our parents, to our working parents, to people of color, um, and saw how all of these issues were interrelated, that continues to be my why. When I look at what happened when my childcare costs were more than my mortgage payment each month, that continues to be my why. When I look at society and I see we can do better, we can do better for people that have been marginalized through the systems, right? It's not individuals that are being marginalized. It's the system. It's the way that our society is set up. We can do better. And I want to be just a small part of that i want to use what i have and my experiences to just be a small part of that
1: yeah that makes so much yeah so much of what you said uh, resonates and um just thinking about how all those interlocking systems just they're built they're designed but they're not necessarily designed in a way that makes it possible for people to navigate them to to serve the purpose that you know they're supposedly for all of those things and um you know built to keep certain people out uh, all of the things that you're talking about and so yeah for for me as well what what small part can i play in in um just making it incrementally better i don't i don't have um illusions that my contribution will will bring us you know dramatic change but can i at least be on the side of um trying to address the issues and 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 point them out to people that there are all these interlocking systems that just make it so hard for people in our society to just do the basic things they need to do to take care of themselves and their families exactly exactly So talk a little bit about the um, work that you're doing these days uh, and and just describe um, a little bit about uh, the kind of how that contribution shows up now.
0: So the work that I do, I'm an organizational development consultant, and I do this for mission focused organizations. And I look at the people, systems, process and technology so that nonprofits predominantly are, are mission-focused organizations can deliver their mission quicker. Um, and, and I really look back at my career and I'm like, how did I get here? I got here by accident. I was absolutely supposed to be a lawyer by training. I had established my mock trial team in high school. I went to Cornell undergrad and I was pre-law. I was going to do public policy And then somewhere in between there, I pivoted to a lot of business courses. And I found I was really, really good at business. And then I graduated and I didn't want to necessarily do business, but I ended up doing fundraising and no one goes to college and is like, I want to fundraise, right? But then in fundraising, everyone's like, where's the money? And I looked up and intuitively I was like, the system is broken, You're having a hard time getting money because is your program actually programming? Are you delivering what you say you're going to deliver? Are you communicating with your people in a way that they want to be communicated with in the frequency, the modality, with the tone? Are you investing them? Are you engaging them in a way that makes sense? Are your finances clear? Are they transparent? Can you pass an audit? Are you filing your 990s? Does your board understand their fiduciary duty? Do they understand what they're supposed to be doing for the organization? Do they understand bylaws and committee work? Do they understand they're supposed to be representatives? Is your executive team working well together? Because oftentimes I I found they weren't, right? Are they actually working well together? Does your technology support or does it hinder your internal processes? Does your internal team actually talk to each other or is it a stake of this is my work, get out of my sandbox? And I spent, even when I didn't have the authority, the power, the experience, I spent so much of my time doing what I now know to be change management work and figuring out, and I would always say, I'm trying to figure out how to get people on the boat and how to row in the same direction. And not only are they rowing in the same direction, but they're going to the same destination. And that's what I ended up doing for the better part of 20 years at this point. And I did it across sectors. So now here I am on my own. i an entrepreneur. And I end up working with organizations. Again, you know my background. I'm predominantly social justice-based. My heart is with women, children, BIPOC communities, LGBTQIA+, marginalized communities, figuring out how to make nonprofit organizations, mission-focused organizations, better at serving their intended constituency more quickly. So I go in and I help typically with a discrete task that then opens up. I'm like, hey, there's a lot of other stuff happening here. I could potentially help with that. Um, And I do that for a little bit. And oftentimes I help them with permanent hires so that they can have an ongoing base of work. And really all I do is I jumpstart that process and getting them back to good.
1: Yeah, I love what you talked about in terms of... um you know, not only getting people on the boat, getting people rowing in the same direction and then help, helping them understand where they want to go. So you and I both are organization development consultants. And so, you know, I focus in on that on definitely that piece where uh, you're working with them on strategic planning. So we may find all those different things that you're talking about in terms of, um, you know, all the different things that could be getting in their way of, of doing effective work and um so when i when i'm working with groups i'm helping them you know kind of map out what is that process what is you know what is going on right now where do we want to go how do we get there what's a plan to to move us in that direction and um it's interesting because my entry into organization development was also was more just being in organizations and wondering you know we we have these lofty goals and missions and yet we're not necessarily living those values inside our organization why is that and you know how could we be more like that and what what would really help move help you know have it all be in alignment so that it's more of a multiplier effect instead of those kind of crosswinds um, that that I noticed. So one of the things that's that's going on a lot with organizations um, is that you know with the pandemic, kind of a sudden shift to remote work, um, and you know some organizations were already operating that way, and for some it was brand new, and now some are you know thinking, okay, we've got a, a lease with a with a office space that that's going to go going to be finished in a, in a couple of years. What are we going to do next? Do we want to continue with a hybrid kind of model, which a lot of organizations are doing, or do we want to be remote first? Um, what are you seeing in terms of kind of that context and, and what people need to do if they, if they do choose to, to shift to that remote first um, organization? Just as June started telling me about what she was seeing with her clients around their decisions about whether to go remote first, hybrid, or come fully back into the office, a free train went by my house and interfered with my internet. So, unfortunately, her audio for that portion of the conversation was a bit garbled. So, I will attempt to paraphrase the points that she made. First, she talked about her clients who were not remote before the pandemic. Not everyone, of course, started their remote work journey in March of 2020. There were plenty of early adopters who'd actually been doing it for years, which is lucky for everyone else, since that meant that there were already plenty of tools that people could start using that those folks had been developing and using for years. Yet, as as people were forced to shift to remote, and of course, were also having to social distance in the rest of their lives as well, people were craving connection. So June talked about informal channels being set up on Slack or Teams channels to exchange non-work items, such as the latest good network series that everybody should be watching. Organizations were also increasing the number of in-person check-ins, bringing the whole team together when possible. So for example, if they ordinarily did a yearly retreat, this might now be quarterly. And also more attention paid to intentional check-ins with staff across layers of the organization. June also described the dilemmas facing leaders as they decide whether to shift back to a hybrid in-person schedule, and then once doing that, how to use the office space that they had, because for many, they now had much more space than they needed with not everyone in the office all week. Some decided to fully divest themselves of the space, selling their furniture and everything else. Others did not do that or were unable to do that, and so tried subletting their space to other organizations. And for others, they really wanted everyone back in the space because the organization had made a substantial investment in the office space. So as June pointed out, different leaders and different organizations were all making a variety of different choices.
0: Um, What I tend to find is that the ones who are very much... um about bringing their employees back into the office, also have employees who are either overtly or covertly looking for a new job. No one wants to stay in a two hour commute each way to come into an office to sit on a Zoom call that they could have taken from home. Um, I think that that's a drawback. I also think that another drawback is, well, what does this mean that you've invested all of this money into new paint, new furniture, a new space, what are you gonna do with all of this capital investiture? And that goes back to the board decision-making, right? What is, what is the board saying about it? What is a board feeling about this? Because that's a long-term strategic play. And I don't think that the boards and the executives are necessarily aligned, at least in my experience. Um, and then you've got folks that are trying to figure it out. Do you do hoteling? Do you make hot desks, right? Do you limit your footprint and do you figure out how employees can share offices or share desks? Is there a way that you can sub, I have um, other organizations that I know of that have huge office spaces, but are subleasing it and are saying, hey, like, can we bring in other organizations who maybe need a space, but don't want to make that capital investment? Can they use some of our space so we can recoup some of that funding? Um, so I think in the case of the latter, where people are trying to figure it out, there's some really innovative ways that organizations are thinking about a return to office um, or not. And um, they're very much still in that space of how do we figure this out while still ensuring that our employees want to work here?
1: Yeah, I think part of the challenge is that in in some ways, if the decision making is being um, kind of driven by the investment that already happened or is ongoing for having an an office, um, that... You know, in some cases, depending on the services that the organization is 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 providing, having a physical space for people to come to may be very important. In other cases, it it may not. It may be the exact thing that you were describing of, you know, going, commuting distances to then sit on uh, Zoom meetings um, with people around the country. I mean, really, if I think about my experience in the office when I. Worked inside an organization. Most of my work was with people across the country. We were a national organization, and so yes, we were spending a lot of time on meetings like this. And yet, I was gathering with my team to sit in an office um, each day. Yeah, you know, people talk a lot about the um, kind of the water cooler effect, and you know, this this to me, what feels like a little bit of a myth of. You know the serendipity that's going to happen if you're in um, a, a central location and you're going to bump into somebody you might not have at the at the at the um, you know at the water cooler when you're getting a cup of coffee. And I, I, I'm curious to know from you what I feel like that ends up being a little bit of an excuse of we can't have culture unless we're all in a in a in a space together, co-located and. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts about that are.
0: I, I do. I do believe that it's a myth, right? Innovation doesn't require physical presence. I mean, if if you look at some of the most innovative teams that are out here in the world, they don't all report to the same offices, right? That's the beauty of the human state and the human existence. I think that it's a very um, easy way of bringing people to the office and saying, hey, we need to innovate. We need our teams here. Uh, that it's certainly not a prerequisite. never has been. And I, I go back to like, folks, we've been remote. Like we were remote for years. Did that stop your innovation? Did that stop your operations at all? What has changed? Nothing. <laughs> so I, I think that it's, it's a convenient way of bringing people back to the office. But frankly, um, there is some merit to it, especially for younger folks, right? For folks that are newer to the workforce, I think they're having a hard time understanding culture. Um, and we could talk about, uh, the differences between maybe experienced workers and those that are coming into the workforce. But I think that, that, especially those that are just starting out appreciate the face time and appreciate the ability to understand the nuances. Yeah. Of and I think
1: for sure, um, that, like there's culture, no matter how you're set up. There's culture whether you're a remote-first organization or whether you're co-located. But I think it was not as front and center when it was kind of assumed that we would we would have one and and it would be cultivated and be healthy, which was also a big assumption. If we're all in the in the same space together, um, I certainly am showing lots of my biases because I. I that you know you can work very well remotely and have done done lots of that work and um i think it's all it all to me goes to the purpose of what are you for each thing what are you trying to do and also being remote first doesn't mean that you never you can never meet in person right you can have those intentional retreats where they're designed and they're they're you know the purpose of them is to help people get to know each other help people talk about what our culture is, what we want it to be um, and and build that together. And um, I'm curious say a little bit more about where you're seeing people you know entering the workforce initially and not having that, um, you know, wh- whatever you might get built in from going to an office and being, you know, in, in lines of desks and offices uh, next to each other. Oftentimes, you know, not spending a lot of time uh, talking uh, with your other colleagues, except on breaks. Um, I'm, I'm curious, what are some ways that you've seen organizations do a good job of helping newer uh, staff members um, integrate and, and understand what the culture is?
0: So I I think that this is a challenge. It's an intergenerational challenge, frankly. And I think that um, there are a few things that I've noticed both in my experience and working with clients. The first is that um, the newer generations, whether I, you know, the upper parts of millennials are 40. So people are like, oh, they're, they're new. Like not really. They've been in the workforce for a little bit now. (laughs) Really looking at the Gen Z folks and both with millennials, See, folks, what I've realized is that they have been trained on individualism, right? You go through school, you get your own grade. You work hard, you get an output. You're praised for effort, whether you show up and do a good job or not. And I think at the workforce, right, when you're working on a project, very rarely is your work individually based. Very, very rarely. So when you provide feedback to them, they're not used to having feedback that requires multiple layers of iteration, that requires multiple ways of thinking, that requires a collaboration that is beyond their own individual contribution um, and the reflection of their individual contribution and their feedback. So I think first and foremost, is like figuring out and teaching folks that like your grade, quote unquote, relies upon other people. And that's something that It's hard to transition into um, coming out of school and into the workforce generally, but even more so when you don't know who to reach out to, you don't know what their temperament is like, you're not quite sure how to navigate that introduction, and you're also not quite sure how to ask for help in a way that doesn't make you seem like you don't know what you're doing. Rather, I just want to improve upon what I've done. So I think that is one thing that I've seen in terms of a generational gap. Um, and one, frankly, which would be easier for younger folks to be in the office and figure out through contextual clues, how people are are interacting and who to go to and who to speak to and what people's temperament is like generally. Um, I think the other thing in terms of understanding culture, right, when people talk about culture, it's this amorphous term. What exactly is culture? Well, culture, of course, are the policies, but they're the also unwritten norms, of uh, what happens in an office, right? So people know not to go to June after four o'clock for anything administrative because June's gonna say no. Well, how do you know that? You only know that by dealing with June both formally and informally. That's not written anywhere, right? People know to only go to Carol about things that have to do with strategic <laughs> planning from the hours of nine to 11, because that's when she does her best work. Well, how do you know that? You You don't, right? You know that because You've interacted with Carol. You've worked with Carol. People generally know that that's the best way to get an answer out of Carol. Um, and I think that's also hard for people to pick up contextually over virtual means. Um, so I think that it, that's what people are looking for and, and yearning. Um, and but I also think that there's this question of advancement, right? People want to do jet. I feel like people come into jobs and they want to do a good job. They want to be seen. They want to be seen for being helpful. Um, and it's a lot harder to be seen. I think, especially if you're more junior in your career by those that are executive management, when they're not walking by a conference room and constantly see that June is in all of the key meetings or they don't constantly hear, Oh, like June keeps on being brought up as a project. Um, and i think that's what they're all yeah i can see it's it's
1: almost you know a lot of people talk about that water cooler moment but it's more the if i'm in my cubicle i'm a junior staff person i can swivel around and ask the person who's been here a year longer than me well if i need to do x what you know what what's my next step and those kinds of questions that um you might be more hesitant to feels it feels very um, low stakes to just turn around and ask someone. It may feel more high stakes to send a Slack message to, you know, your, your per, the person who's kind of would be the equivalent, you know, remotely or get on a call or, you know, even make a phone call um, to someone to have a chat about something, which is certainly uh, not, not as common these days.
0: It, it feels so much more formal, right? Because to get on right. a video call, you've actually got to get on their calendar and you've got to um, as opposed to swiveling so around. So what are some things Absolutely.
1: that um, leaders can do to kind of help uh, newer staff people um, if they are in that, in that remote first uh, situation?
0: So I've heard a couple of things, both formal and informal, right? So, and and these are things that folks can consider. One is that, especially if you have a remote first environment, um, some offices that I know of are bringing people in once a month to just have a social day. Um, and for a lot of people, they're like, okay, I'll come in once a month, but don't expect me to get any work done. Because you have designated this as breakfast and lunch, we'll be with teams or groups of people or duos or trios right to really like build those connections and then they'll have social interactions just built into that one day so that people can on in a formal way figure out how to forge those relationships and they they know they come prepared and I also think that that comes with the different kind of neurodiversity that you see in the workplace some people need to be very prepared to show up in a group of people and know that this is the day and know that they're going to put their best foot forward, whereas other folks that maybe don't need that are very much like, oh, this is amazing. Um, so I think having scheduled times like that, whether they're on a monthly this week, biweekly basis is, is extremely helpful. That way people can figure out how to leverage that. Um, I think also having um, brown bags, right, whether they're virtual or not. I always was a fan of people will always gather for food, especially if it's food that they like. Can you send lunches to people? Can you have a one-on-one with them? Can you have a brown bag on a quarterly basis, a monthly basis, some way for executive leaders. And you could invite anyone in the organization up to 10 people, 15 people. doesn't really matter so that they can get to know you, um, and do it over food almost like you are having it at a conference room per per se. I think that's also important. Um, and then finally, having an opportunity to just pop in during team meetings I think is also important. So if, um, if you're the head of, of a team, when your team kind of is whiteboarding things or workshopping things, can you pop into that workshop and sit in and, and have that informal dialogue? Um, if you're the head of a department, can you go into some of your subordinate team meetings on an informal basis? Um, And if you're the head of the organization, how do you do those informal one-on-one check-ins, particularly with your most junior folks, so that they can feel seen and heard? Um, The flip side to that is that it could also be anxiety-inducing, right? It could stop the free flow of information because all of a sudden you've got this executive that's sitting there, um, but to know that, hey, I'm, I'm just here and I'm here to listen and show them a couple of times that you're here to listen and that they can
1: open up and i'm uh, I'm thinking also about your comment around um how you know when folks were inside an office they can observe people they can observe people in other meetings they can swivel around and ask a, a colleague you know well what's the best way to approach june about this but teams can also have explicit conversations about those things and you know i've seen people like you know write up a, a, an operating procedure of like what works with each person and and just having a series of questions where you actually talk about those things so that it becomes more explicit instead of some people being able to observe and kind of infer what that is and, uh, and others, you know, not being so sure to, to, you know, yes, there's a lot of stuff that generally has been unwritten. It hasn't needed to be of formalized, it hasn't needed to be explicit because people could kind of, you know, learn through observation. But I think one of the big challenges is with this shift is helping people understand what needs to be more explicit in a remote first environment or even in a hybrid environment and um, helping leaders and managers learn what they need to do differently um, in those those environments versus what they've been used to and kind of wasn't front of you know wasn't top of mind in how they were uh, proceeding. I mean I think a lot of um, you know my bias is well if if we could uh, do more development and training around these things people could be more successful than just throwing them in and, and assuming it's all going to be the same and they'll figure it out.
0: And, and I absolutely love that. I think that's where the OD, the organizational development comes out from the both of us. And I always say, like, can we make the implicit explicit? And a lot of the times the answer is no. And it's no because of the level of comfort mm. that the managers and the leaders have. And a lot of that comes with coaching and saying, like, this is so maybe sometimes, especially if you're in a remote first environment, like let me make the implicit explicit. I'm expecting it by this day and this time at this level of quality because I have these five things that are that will come afterwards. And you doing a good job at this point allows me to do the five things that I need to do after I receive this. deliverable. Um, I think that, that that's important. But I think that we miss the second part of saying, "I need this by this date and this time, right?" and and not making it explicit as to the implications as to why I need it on this date and this time and at this level of quality. Um, and that takes a lot of coaching. Um, it takes a lot of understanding. It takes a lot of repetition, um, and it takes a leadership style that is. Not necessarily directive, right? But one that is explicit, and a lot of, um, particularly in our society, a lot of it is nuanced. Um, and I feel like if you are very direct, your signal is not nice, right? As opposed to just like stating, like this is what it is. It's it's not meant to be mean. It's not meant to be harsh. It's meant so that everyone understands what. And we're And then on the flip side,
1: um, you know, creating. Or, or, staff having the the confidence to, you know, ask for clarification if there isn't that that clarity, and you know that can be that can feel challenging and can feel um, maybe anxiety producing as you as you described, um, but I think you know there have been plenty of times when I've had to say, well, wait a second, let me let me just. This is what I heard. Is that what we're both agreeing to? Let's let's make sure that, and to to take that moment and uh, especially at the end of any kind of meeting and just you know, make sure that you capture those. It's so easy to just move on or not not to want to feel like, well, you know, I must be dumb if I didn't get it. Well, no, probably other people in the room didn't quite get it either. So you know, ask the clarifying question.
0: That's right. That's right. I, I've always told my teams, I'm like, I don't necessarily value answers. I value the question, right? Are you asking the right questions? Because it tells me that you'll get to the right answer. So
1: um, as I'm coming to the end um, on each episode, I like to uh, ask each guest what permission slip would they give to nonprofit leaders, or what would they invite them to consider to avoid being a martyr to the cause and as they work towards cultivating a healthier organizational culture. So either a permission slip or an invitation.
0: Oh, I've been, I have been really thinking about this over the past few weeks. And the invitation that I have is to say, mm-hmm. am I furthering white supremacy or through these actions? And, um, it's a hard one to swallow because I feel like the nonprofit industrial complex furthers white supremacy through all of the interactions that we have. Um, And it could be things that are as simple as fixing, like, can we post salary ranges on these job postings? Or is the way that I'm communicating particularly to people of color, one that is, Directive and subjugates them to a yes, no, because they're beholden to me for a paycheck. Um, Is the way that I am engaging with community and the folks that I'm looking to serve one that is co creating versus one that is one directional? Um, And what are ways of working and what are ways that, even from philanthropy, right, are we requiring you to do? What at at this point, right? Reports and proposals that show that we don't trust that you're going to use this funding in a way that you know best since you're the one serving the constituency that you're serving. Um, So that's my invitation. My invitation is to really look at what we're all doing collectively. And ask ourselves if it's actually furthering what's important. Yeah, because that's where we
1: started, all those systems that that are designed in a way that that you know just are designed to make life hard for people, and then all the ways that we're used to working, all the assumptions that are built in, um, you know, we've unpacked some of them, but uh, that's a an even even larger invitation. So I really appreciate that.
0: Absolutely, thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Carol.
1: It was great conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with June, her full bio, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I'd like to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as charde Carbonell of 100 Ninjas for her production support of the podcast. And we'd love to hear from you. Take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. And until next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute and make an impact.